Greetings and welcome, everyone, once again to Author in the Room, a monthly program sponsored by JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, and IHI, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. My name is Dr. Chuck Kylo, and I'll be your moderator for today's call. We're delighted that you could join us. As you know, Author in the Room calls are designed to translate new knowledge, or what is published in a recent JAMA article, into actionable steps that can improve clinical practice and patient care. Author in the Room occurs on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m., with our next call being on Wednesday, December 16th, uh, and the article for that call will be Rethinking Screening for Breast Cancer and Prostate Cancer, with the first author being Dr. Laura Esserman. Look forward to that call. That, uh, that article appeared in the October 21st issue of JAMA and would like to thank Dr. Uh, Maggie Winker, who is Deputy Editor of JAMA, for her role in choosing the articles every month. We are coming up on Author in the Room's fifth anniversary in a couple of months, and uh, Dr. Winker has done a fantastic job of choosing the articles uh, which are highly pertinent to our daily clinical work. So uh, thank you to her. Today our featured article is Association of an Educational Program in Mindful Communication with Burnout, Empathy, and Attitudes Among Primary Care Physicians, with first author Dr. Michael Krasner being on the call to talk with us about that article today. Welcome, Michael. Nice to be here, Chuck. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, Dr. Krasner, who goes by Mick, uh, is Associate Professor of Clinical Medicine at the University of Rochester Medical Center. He's practiced primary care internal medicine for nearly 20 years. For the past 10 years, he's studied and facilitated mindfulness-based interventions in healthcare settings and trained health professionals in mindful, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction programs. Uh, and Dr. Krasner has a deep uh, research uh, uh, history around this topic, so it's wonderful to have him join us today. As moderator for today's call, it's my job to help focus our discussion on the application of Dr. Krasner's research with the goal of driving performance improvement based on this content. We're really delighted, again, uh, to be addressing this point. It is very pertinent in today's environment uh, with the stresses that primary care is under. So here's how the hour will proceed. Uh, I'll turn it over to Dr. Krasner in just a minute. He'll spend about 10 minutes summarizing the article. I'll take just a few minutes to recap that, and then we will turn it over to you, the participants, for both your questions and your comments and your experiences around this particular topic. We want to stress how important your participation is in these calls. Again, not just your questions, but your experiences as well. This is a great form to get clarification from Dr. Craster on the article itself or by, by talking about issues around uh, the content of physician well-being, if you will. Uh, your participation is... Uh, again, critical there may be, uh, on a background basis only, uh, individuals from the press on the call. And one other note, this call is being recorded and will be made available on both the IHI and JAMA websites should you choose to listen to this call or to prior calls uh, at uh, time convenient to you. So let's get started. Again, let me introduce Dr. Michael Krasner, who will provide an overview of the article. Dr. Krasner? Thank you. Thanks. And thanks to the Institute for Healthcare Improvement in uh, the Journal of the American Medical Association. I just want to begin by also acknowledging uh, the Physicians Foundation for Health Systems Excellence who funded our project and the American College of Physicians New York State chapter who sponsored us. And of course, my collaborators uh, without whom I couldn't have done this project or led this project, Drs. Epstein, Beckman, Suckman, Drs. Mooney and 
Quill, um, and uh, Ben Chapman, as well as uh, the Monroe County Medical Society and the Rochester Individual Practice Association. So just a little background at first. Uh, in April of 2009, you may have seen a commentary in the Journal of the American Medical Association by Drs. Ludwig and Kabat-Zinn, where they commented that the current age has been referred to as one of continuous partial attention. Now, for many of you listening, this is probably very real, even at this moment as your uh, beepers may go off or your cell phones or you're being texted. And that's just to mention some of the external things that take our attention away, not even beginning to mention all the internal processes that are also driving our attention in one direction or another from moment to moment. Now, the practice of medicine uh, really is becoming and has been stressful, becoming more and more stressful, and the sources of that, uh, of that portion of that practice that grabs our attention are protean. It's everywhere. And yet the quality that uh, we will call mindfulness, I believe, is integral to the professional competence of physicians. And it has to do with attention, awareness, which are fundamentally qualities of consciousness. Now, studying consciousness is relatively new. Uh, of interest to most psychological study has been the content of the consciousness, what one's thinking about, and that sort of thing, not so much the context in which the contents are expressed. And when I, as I talk about this project, I'll share with you about the experience of 70 primary care physicians who over the course of the year took part in this educational program. I'll speak of the context of the intervention through which the experience of the practice of medicine was explored, inquired about, contemplated, and shared. And as a result, without attributing too much of the content to the content of the intervention, because uh, I believe that the context and process of the open exploration was at least partially responsible for the changes that we demonstrated. We demonstrated improvements in not only the participants' personal well-being, but also in several indicators of increased patient-centered approach to care. And that's where I think this kind of uh, program has its application in the day-to-day -day practice of medicine. So I just thought we'd start with defining mindfulness uh, it's a hard thing to define because it's a quality uh, that actually is existent in, in every one. It refers in this case to uh, this quality and the practices, the meditative practices that cultivate present moment awareness. It involves attending to relevant aspects of experience in a non-judgmental manner. It's actually a universal capacity, as I've mentioned. It's uh, some of the adjectives that's described that's used to describe it include clarity, uh, non-conceptual, that is it's not filtered through the cognitive processing, it's flexible. Think about a surgeon who's operating uh, and being very focused in on the actual task to which the hands are applied to, but also aware of the context of the operating room, the nursing staff and other assistants, the anesthesiologist and so on. So it can be both a spotlight and a floodlight, a flexible attention. It's empirical which I think really uh, makes it very much uh, easy for physician scientists, so to speak, to apply because it defers judgment until the examination of the facts, and it's oriented to the present moment, and it's a characteristic that's stable. It's been said that mindfulness leads the mind back from theories, attitudes, and abstractions to the situation of experience itself, which prevent us from falling prey to our own prejudices, opinions, projections, 
expectations and enables us to free ourselves from the straitjacket of unconsciousness. So why should any of this matter to clinicians? Well, I believe it makes a difference in terms of the quality of care we provide to patients. Mindfulness allows the clinician to hear the patient's concern more clearly, hopefully assess the situation more completely, develop a more strong and more empathic relationship that can foster perhaps improved compliance and health-promoting behaviors, and also avoid errors. Uh, Dr. Jerome Groupman uh, wrote in his recent book, How Doctors Think About Misdiagnoses, that he says result from faulty thinking and the cognitive traps and pitfalls that can be avoided by paying attention to thinking itself. This is a central focus of mindfulness practice in which awareness of cognitive events as well as somatic and emotional awareness are key. So back to the paper, I should mention that mindfulness-based stress reduction, which is one of the ways in which mindfulness uh, is cultivated, has been in existence uh, over 30 years, and studies have supported its use in pain management, quality of life and mood improvements in cancer patients, recurrent depression, eating disorders, enhanced immune system, uh, and also, interestingly enough, uh, um, in one study, the effects of care on patients of psychotherapy interns who were involved in mindfulness training, the, the care of the patients improved. So in this paper, uh, we begin by talking about burnout, which is a, a well-recognized problem in medicine. It's particularly significant in primary care internal medicine. You know, a well-functioning primary care system is central to the health status of communities, and studies have also demonstrated efficiencies in cost and quality where more primary care services are utilized. Yet burnout is prevalent and its consequences threaten access to primary care services. It may be related to a lack of sense of control and even a lack of meaning, professional meaning. So we hypothesized that while we were planning this intervention, that this lack of personal autonomy and control and this loss of meaning could be addressed by enhancing practitioner's mindfulness, your ability to pay attention on purpose in the present moment without judgment. And we wanted to focus the intervention on on the primary activity of physicians, the direct interpersonal activities of patient care, so that the laboratory and experimental setup, if you will, involved to a large degree mirroring interpersonal physician-patient activities with colleagues. Using mindfulness as the foundation of training, we integrated communication skills training within this container of mindfulness, which included narrative medicine, which draws upon stories that we hear and become part of in our relationship with patients, and a technology of change management that's referred to as appreciative inquiry, in which the focus is on a recognition and exploration of successes and capacities rather than exclusively on negative experiences and deficiencies, so that even when one's investigating uh, experience of something that's very challenging, for example, or discouraging, the dialogue uh, often would shift to what actually went right, how one managed and negotiated through the difficulty, what strengths were required, et cetera. So that we began uh, recruiting our participants, uh, and after recruitment and had the program in place, we met for eight weekly sessions uh, for about two and a half hours each week. After the sixth week, there was an all-day session between week six and seven, and during this uh, all-day session we refer to as the retreat, we practiced in silence, allowing the participants to focus for extended periods on present moment experience. Now, following this, what we would call an intensive phase of the program, we continued to meet monthly for 
10 more sessions. There was a total of about 52 hours of training involved altogether. And at each session, we developed a theme that was used not only to provide a context for the narrative and appreciative dialogues, but also to provide a focus for the mindfulness meditation practice. And the themes are listed in the paper, but they include things such as burnout itself, suffering, self-care, the dynamic of attraction in the medical encounter, uh, boundaries, end-of-life care, and so on. We used a variety of tools to measure the what I would call three major domains of uh, changes, the first being uh, changes in well-being, uh, the second being changes in patient-centeredness, and the third being mindfulness itself. So the, I'll mention them uh, just so you have a context, and as you look at the article uh, later, you'll have a, a better sense of it. The well-being measures would include the Maslach burnout scale, the profile of mood states, and the mini markers personality scale. Um, the patient-centered measures included the Jefferson scale of physician empathy and the physician's belief scale, which is a measure of the extent to which psychosocial factors are felt to be important by the physician. And then mindfulness uh, measurements uh, were done using two factors, uh, the observe and non-react factors of what is now referred to as a five-facet mindfulness questionnaire, which is a further development of what used to be called the Kentucky Inventory of Mindfulness Skills, or the KIMS. So what we did was uh, when people registered for the program and then at the first class we took surveys. So there were two sets of surveys by the time of the opening of the program. There was about a little over a month between, on average between the first survey and the second survey. We measured again after the intensive phase, after the first eight weeks, and at the end of the year-long program, we measured again. So that's 12 months. And then three months after completing the program. And uh, the results I will just summarize and then suggest some of the significance of the results, and then hopefully we'll have a lively discussion um, improvements in mindfulness and burnout, they all, all three subscales of burnout, which include uh, emotional exhaustion, depersonalization, or treating patients as objects, and personal accomplishment, all showed improvements, uh, as well as total mood disturbance uh, and some of the subscales of the mood states, including depression, anger, and fatigue, showed improvements uh, that, exist, that persisted beyond 12 months to 15 months. Uh, the personality subscales of conscientiousness and emotional stability also improved. Um, in terms of uh, patient-centeredness, the total empathy scale, in, including the subscale of standing in the patient's shoes and perspective-taking, showed improvement. And the physician's belief scale, which is also, uh, I explained, was the extent to which the physician takes in psychosocial factors as being important, also improved. Additionally, we looked at correlations between the mindfulness improvements and some of the other domains of improvements, and there was moderate correlation between improvements in mindfulness and total mood disturbance. Uh, there was correlation between improvements in mindfulness and the perspective-taking subscale of empathy, the emotional exhaustion, and, and personal accomplishment subscales of burnout, and also the same personal, personality factors conscientiousness and emotional stability. And for almost all these measures, uh, we saw similar degrees of improvement at eight weeks, at 12 months, and at three months after the end of, pro of the program. So those are the results. Uh, what's the significance of all this? Uh, I should mention that 
For many of these scales, normative data are very difficult to come by. We generally used standardized mean differences for assessing changes, and this is a generally well-accepted measure of what constitutes small, medium, or large changes in these psychological measurements. Um, for burnout, however, there are norm normative data, and it was a little disturbing to, uh, to see that the baseline measurements especially for emotional exhaustion and depersonalization, showed a significant degree of burnout among many of the participants um, with what I would label clinically significant improvements through the course and beyond. Another point of significance, you know, some doctors will participate in a year-long educational intervention that focuses on self-awareness and interpersonal communication skills. You know, I think this was, this is not a small thing. Uh, when we set out to to design this intervention, among ourselves, I think we had some doubts as to whether we would be able to recruit and get people interested, but um, we were able to actually meet our objectives. That was the number that we came up with before we began recruitment, and we, we met that. Um, our findings, we believe, support our theory of mindful practice, practice that holds that enhancing intrapersonal and interpersonal self-awareness can improve well-being and effectiveness in clinical practice. Also, enhancing the quality of consciousness we call mindfulness may be an important mediator of these effects. We say maybe. It's something to look into. Anecdotally, the ability to spend time with colleagues together in a non-judgmental and open exploration of powerful experiences as clinicians alone was an important feature, and even perhaps a mediator of these changes we're willing to consider. Being together in community and having the time to talk about complexities of practice with colleagues and appreciation for a dedicated time to think, reflect, and communicate are two of the strongest themes that we've seen reported in follow-up interviews of participants. Becoming more self-aware and improved listening skills were also some themes that uh, follow-up interviews have, have taught us that were important to participants. Now, we can't generalize this to all physicians or even all primary care physicians. We looked at the effects among those most likely to participate, those who signed up. Um, we can't say much about how this would apply to reluctant uh, practitioners or other specialists or even other groups of health professionals. Um, I think our study raises some qu important questions about how these, measures improvement, how these measured improvements in well-being and patient-centered care translates into quality of care, efficiency of care, and patient satisfaction. This would be a further, an area of further study. Uh, this is certainly not a panacea for all the woes of medicine or even of primary care medicine, nor does it create a compliant body of professionals. This is one of the criticisms of it, uh, a, a compliant body that's more able to withstand unacceptable levels of stress and demands. On the contrary, I think this intervention focuses on the very skills that are so central to professional competence, uh, as cited in Ron Epstein's JAMA article in 1999, attentive observation, critical curiosity, beginner's mind, and presence. In responding to the criticism that it makes physicians more accepting and compliant, I think the contrary. I believe that by allowing for clearer assessment of present moment experience, it can more easily translate into effective action by physicians to address the challenges they face, whether those challenges are intrapersonal, interpersonal, institutional, or systemic. I should mention this is a quote that came uh, from one of our interviews 
with uh, participants as we were uh, looking at uh, looking into what they thought were important. And this is a direct quote. One of the things that comes out of this too is that when you establish a practice of thinking more honestly, thinking more clearly, speaking more honestly, that definitely leaks out into your work every day. It certainly opens you up to being more ready with patients, colleagues, family, to have those kinds of conversations and to have that kind of a more intimate, more honest interaction with people. And that certainly was the case for me that came out of this in the rest of my work. It certainly made it much more immediate and easy to do in my practice. Uh, two more final points. But mindfulness is not something you, you have or you don't have. It's something you can cultivate and learn to be more mindful. How? Courses like this, courses like mindfulness-based stress reduction, we have at uh, the University of Rochester School of Medicine and at the Medical Center for the last three years placed a piece of this into the required curriculum for all third-year medical students and into the required curriculum for all residents in nine different departments, including surgery, internal medicine, family medicine, pediatrics, neurology, and psychiatry. This should be part of clinical training, and it should be made available as part of ongoing continuing medical education. Uh, this is a statement from William James, uh, considered the father or the parent, if you will, of, of modern psychology. In 1890, he wrote, the faculty of bringing, together, bringing back a wandering attention over and over again is the very root of judgment, character, and will. No one is compo sui if he have it not. An education which should improve this faculty would be the education par excellence, but it's easier to define this ideal than to give practical instructions for bringing it about. So finally, the next step, looking into how this would apply to other groups of doctors, having a controlled, a controlled study, looking at quality, efficiency, and patient satisfaction outcomes, looking at the length of the intervention phases, not just among physicians, but entire healthcare teams, including clerical staff and uh, ancillary uh, clinical staff. Uh, also, we, we have data from this study that we can look into more deeply that may be helpful in terms of looking at gender differences or among those who started more or less mindful or more or less burned out in terms of the magnitude of the changes measurement measured. And that may have implications on designing future interventions that can focus on those most in need and those most likely to benefit. So that's my summary. Great. Thank you, Dr. Krasner. I appreciate that. And uh, this is a really uh, uh, interesting topic, and I think there will probably be a lot of comments and, uh, and conversation to follow. So I'd like to get straight on to the calls or comments from, uh, from the participants. And we'll take our first question from Dr. George Ford. Hi, this is... Uh this is George Ford in San Antonio, Texas. I'm an internist, and um, I want to thank you for having the forum number one. And I want to thank I want to thank Dr. Krasner for an absolutely fabulous article. I spoke to him yesterday, and it's very helpful. Well, thank you. Did you have a, a question or a comment? Yes, I, the comment I had, and I was wondering, uh, do you think maybe the reason for the burnout, the makeup of the doctor going in in to see the patient as someone who really has a sense of calling and helping, he finds many times the problems he's dealing with are actually existential issues. They're, they're issues of one's 
living one's life, living one's life in relationship with others, and they're not usually amenable to taking a pill. And so the one who has no training in anything social or um, interactive, he simply comes in with a medical database is suddenly facing all of these problems. He doesn't know how to solve them. And would you would you not think that that is the thing having these having these burdens of problems that you can't solve that leads to the uh, emotional exhaustion and the subsequent breakdown and 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 that and that by going through the mindfulness training and going through the empathic training, you're able to begin to help the patient solve their own problems. That's a great that's a great question. I think there's a lot of a lot of aspects of that question. So, Dr. Krasner? Yeah, thank you, George, and uh, appreciate your comments. Uh, and the question is, is a very good question, um, that many of the problems that people come in to the office with in primary care, or for that matter, uh, in any healthcare uh, encounter, even with non-physician healthcare providers, are not necessarily something that can be fixed uh, by a single directed uh, treatment. Um, a pill, and in our in the allopathic mode of Western medicine, uh, and in reducing it to that, I think we do ourselves a, a disservice as well as our patients in terms of the capacity to assist and promote healing. And so, it really, for me, it raises the question: like, what is healing? If there are these problems that uh, can't be fixed or that are managed long term, and as you know, in uh, primary care internal medicine, a lot of what we are doing is assisting management of long-term chronic conditions that have no solution. Um, and some people joke that life itself is a terminal condition. So just the whole existential quality of that statement, you can, you can have a feeling for what that means. I think uh, the applications of this kind of practice in addressing that portion uh, that may be contributing to burnout have to do with being comfortable with uncertainty, of being comfortable with the unknown, and being willing to face and encounter uh, things that we just can't expect. So among the qualities uh, that I mentioned earlier, uh, I included a beginner's mind, for example. Actually, uh, having an experience that uh, the encounter that you're having has not happened before, because actually it hasn't happened before, but it's very quick to uh, reach out and hold on to some very familiar handholds to keep one's uh, comfort, keep oneself comfortable, but what we're often dealing with is the unknown. And actually, if we uh, reach too quickly for these handholds, we may miss some very important key pieces of information that would lead us to perhaps treatment such as that pill that could help. Um, so I think these are, uh, there is a, uh, an element of that challenging and difficulties in being with uncertainty and with the unknown that contributes to burnout. I also think that uh, there's a way to work with that and that uh, the practices of mindfulness which from moment to moment place you in direct contact with uh, the unknown because we really don't know what will happen right now or in the very next moment. And if you can really live that way and be open to that uh, and realize that that is the nature of, of our existence, that we can actually partner with our patients uh, and together work through those unknowns that we all share. Uh, 
Very good question. Very great question. I think we'll have a lot of questions related to that, and we probably have a lot of people in the queue. So we'll go back to you, Tamika. We'll go next to Catherine Ellington. Hi. My name is Catherine Ellington. I'm a medical student from New York, and um, I did read your study and just um, wanted to ask, so beyond being at your particular institution, to embrace um, the knowledge and have sort of resources for for folks to train in mindfulness, how do you think you broaden the curriculum so that it's not necessarily based on like where you went to school, medical school or where you're doing um, residency so that, you know, more people can embrace as they find themselves burning out or maybe as a more of as a prevention strategy that they could take uh, part in sort of some aspects of this work, whether it be in mindfulness or self-reflection and awareness um, workshops. What do you think about that? Great question. Yeah, great question. Thank you, Catherine. Uh, first of all, there, there are a number of medical schools throughout the country that have that are incorporating curriculum similar to the one that I mentioned earlier uh, into their undergraduate medical education programs and even graduate medica medical education programs. So hopefully people will become more exposed to this type of thing. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, you know, it does not have to be this model. It doesn't have to be mindfulness. But I think the process and the experience of focusing on some self-awareness, self-reflective techniques should be a part of education in general, and it uh, should start earlier. It should start at a very early age, and there are people in that study and work in mindfulness-based interventions that are looking at and already bringing this into elementary school education, for, that, for, for example, and secondary education, uh, and it's being brought into other domains. And so one can find ways to foster a self-reflective uh, way of being uh, through things that are probably readily available, whether it's uh, it's a spiritual practice that you're interested in exploring, or whether it's a physical uh, exercise practice, um, whether it's music, uh, there's there are very few things that uh, one as a human are engaged in that mindfulness cannot be a, a part of, or that self-reflection, self-awareness cannot be uh, a part of. So it's sort of look, sort of shifting one's orientation to rather than saying it's not there, it's not here, I can't find it, we, I don't have it, I, I need to go somewhere else to find it. You begin to explore. Well, what is it about my experience uh, that is available to me that's that's already there? Of course, books uh, can be helpful. Uh, books are in some ways just pointing at something. Uh, one, I would hope that uh, books are used to promote some experiential embodied sense of what this is about. Uh, there are CDs and recordings that could guide one in, in meditative practices, for example. So I think there's a, a lot available uh, out there. And um, I should mention that the University of Massachusetts School of Medicine, uh, where the Center for Mindfulness uh, is located, where the initial mindfulness-based stress reduction courses were uh, offered, 30 plus years ago, uh, has a website, and on that website there are uh, there is available um, a directory of mindfulness-based intervention teachers throughout the world. Uh, 
located in many, many communities. In almost any uh, larger urban uh, area, there will be a number of teachers. So if that's something you're interested in pursuing, it's available. That information is out there, and I wish you good luck, Catherine. Great. And, Catherine, maybe you can help to put together a program at your uh, at your medical school. Catherine, hang on the line for a second if you're still there. This is, I think, uh, perhaps, Mick, uh, is a topic that we can take in a little bit of a different direction, Catherine, particularly with you on the call as a medical student. And one of the, one of the things I think of interest is that the impact of expectation on uh, burnout and attitude. Certainly, um, I don't want to say how old I am, but I'm pretty old. And when I when I, when I went to medical school and residency, I had very little expectation other than the fact that I would work very hard. And I think that um, I think that medical students and residents uh, today, it's a very different environment. They have a very different set of expectations going into medical school. Sure. And there are work hour restrictions, which we certainly never had, and this is not a forum to debate whether those are good or not. Um, but I think there is a different set of social expectations that you're coming in with, and in many ways what that leads to today, and we certainly see it in a lot of the, a lot of the, the graduates from residency today, is a desire to put borders and boundaries around your work. This is my work. This is the rest of my life. And my work better not impact on the rest of my life, or it will make me very unhappy. And, uh, uh, Mick, what are, you, what are your thoughts on that, there, these, these cultural trends on impacting uh, ex, you know, clinician expectation and how that affects the totality of our attitude and our, our sense of burnout and things along those lines? Well, I just wanted to also add to that that um, I think what happens in today's training um, creates something that there's a huge lag between sort of physician training and the signs of burnout. So maybe a clinician is not burned out until the first five years after training, Mm -hmm. but, you know, the early years of medical school training still gives um, people their first encounters with the overwhelming workload of physicians, the uncertainty in medicine. And so I think it just makes sense that if there were more opportunities formally within medical education that brought to students' attention so that they could carry some, like a toolkit they could carry with them throughout training, that this would help. Um, Because burnout is not really talked about, but people are working 80 hours a week, there are more women in medicine, so people are balancing responsibilities of families and things like that. So I just wanted to add that part. Lots of, lots of important issues. Dr. Krasner, any comments on that? Yeah, so I should mention um, that burnout is actually present very early in the medical education process. About half of third-year students surveyed report uh, symptoms that are consistent with levels of burnout. And unfortunately, there are very strong associations between medical student burnout and suicidal ideation. So this is a problem that's already there. Um, And I think in addition to these expectations uh, that you mentioned, Chuck, I think there's also just the effects of our environment, uh, in, in particular the messages from our media, the ideal situations that we see out there as portrayed in advertising, for example, and the reality of what's actually happening in one's experience. And actually, that uh, assessment, one's assessment of the ideal versus the real situation is a source of stress. It actually has been measured in some studies to induce a stress response to engage the HPA axis and increase cortisol levels and all those other 
physiologic and neurologic changes that are associated with with stress. I think uh, what mindfulness can can do to help work with expectations and the changing nature of what it means to be a medical professional is that it places oneself right into contact with change. It's actually uh, change being among the most stressful things that that we experience because keeping the status quo is often so much easier. So that uh, the changes that one experiences is the uh, ground, so to speak, of where mindfulness is actually working and allows us to uh, live with the changes, many of which are uh, unex unexpected, unsolicited, and, and unwanted. Um, and uh, certainly I, I think uh, today's uh, medical students have a completely different life experience than the medical students of 20 and 30 years ago and for good reason uh, expect things to be different and uh, and I don't really think uh, thinking about the good old days in each day and, and era we have our own set of uh, of concerns and challenges challenges and um, I think uh, things don't stay the same for very long and I think that's uh, one of the messages uh, that uh, we try to cultivate uh, at least a, um, an awareness of and uh, learn how to work with that in mindfulness training. Great. And I think we'll probably come back to this uh, with a couple more of the questions. So let's, uh, Catherine, thank you very much and we'll see who else is in the queue. Tamika? We'll go next to Scott Early. Hi. Uh, up until July, um, uh, I was the residency program director of the Lawrence Family Medicine Residency based in a community health center. Since July, I'm the vice president for family medicine at Caritas Christie um, Healthcare, and I am um, very interested in the topic of both resident and uh, and attending physician burnout. I, I have a, a, a theory at which I'd like you to comment on, and that is that the um, the rapidity with which we are asked to see patients, you know, probably many of us have heard the term hamster care, with the visual being, you know, that doctor, um, you know, r running on a hamster wheel, uh, running faster and faster and faster and, and getting nowhere, and or you know, running from room to room. And so my my hypothesis is that um, you know, seeing patients so quickly is a source of burnout, and and I also um you know wonder if uh you know regardless of of um training that you may have in mindfulness that 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 it, that, that you know the, the rapid way that we have to see patients will actually limit sort of the, the success that that training will have so i was wondering if you could comment on that Scott, those are great questions good to hear from you again it's been a couple of years since i've seen you great yeah chuck you. nice to hear from you good to hear that you're doing well and let me, i'm gonna, if, if it's okay with you let me turn that question around a little bit it, with you in the role of a uh, of family medicine uh, department now uh, and having a lot of experience in training. Um, maybe the question that we could ask, Dr. Krasner, is what can we do at the outset to create resilient physicians? Uh, it's the resiliency, presumably, that will help us you know, manage the burnout before it, it uh, gets too bad. It will help us maintain our empathy in the face of these things. I don't think we're going to get the, we're going to get primary care off the hamster wheel anytime soon, unfortunately. And uh, so, if we can figure out what the critical elements are for resiliency, then maybe maybe that would help. And that's sort of a, a more positive spin on it a little bit, Dr. Krasner. What would you say to that? 
Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't think we're going to fix that problem of the hamster wheel very easily uh, at all, and I think it's a very real problem. There's no question about it. Um, I would say that among many of the comments, anecdotally, again, that uh, as I was facilitating this program, uh, there were many participants who would say that they are having a hard time at the pace in which they're practiced bringing, applying mindfulness uh, into the clinical setting. Uh, and some of them made very conscious decisions to change the way they practiced medicine because they could no longer do it in the same way with that same rapidity as a result of the things that they were discovering about themselves in the program. What can we do to create uh, more resilient uh, physicians? Well, I think resiliency has uh, at least something to do with one's sense of meaning and one's sense of manageability. And this is not something that I've come up with. This has uh, been reported uh, even, as, even during studies of post-Holocaust victims of those who had uh, made very successful lives. The question asked, you know, what was it about them that helped them survive and not only survive but thrive after that ex uh, experience uh, where there was a sense of no control. And uh, among the things that, they, that were discovered included the sense of meaning and the sense of manageability. And stress reduction techniques uh, of which mindfulness meditation is but one, I think operates at the level of building the resources uh, to handle stresses that uh, one perceives as exceeding one's ab uh, abilities and also works at the level of perception so that it helps reframe things in a way that things uh, sometimes aren't exactly as they seem to be, that our expectancies, our expectations often color uh, how we see things as being uh, excessively stressful or exceeding our resources. So uh, to the extent that these practices can uh, in, in change perception and also build resources, uh, I think they can help create uh, uh, environments in which uh, choices are made that promote meaning, that uh, promote some sense of control over one's own environment and one's own, own way of practicing medicine and the practice of medicine. and. Uh, by doing so, it uh, it can enhance resiliency. You know, I think we discussed in, in our comments uh, in the paper that some of our results did point toward uh, a more resilient uh, a, a more resilient physician uh, through the practice of mindfulness. And I, I really uh, am kind of on shaky ground because I don't want to give the impression that if you do this, uh, you can continue to pile on more and more weight. Uh, and it's like, uh, you know, if you're balancing something on your shoulders, if you just put it a little bit on one side uh, to balance it out, you can continue to carry more and more weight. At some point, the camel's back does break, and at some point, it all can, it, it all can fall apart. But I think through uh, sort of the clarity of perception that can happen through mindfulness practices, one can begin to see the very um, large and sometimes more subtle ways in which uh, this practice is not reflective of the best in us or the best in healthcare. Great, thank you. Uh, Dr. Early, anything else on that? No, no I appreciate the answer. Um, I, I am hopeful, however, that uh, we're going to find a way to get off the hamster wheel. Yeah, I'm, no. I'm working on a delivery model that will um, maybe make some headway. Great. Appreciate that. Tamika, next More question. We'll go next to Linda Lambert. Hi, Nick. This is Linda Lambert. 
<laughs> I couldn't resist not calling in. Um, did want to ask if you could share, perhaps with us and, and our other interested parties, kind of following up on what Catherine had asked, um, what could, what is the potential for expanding this project beyond the current research project? What are the ideas to branch it out across the states and perhaps other ACP chapters? Thank you, Linda. And Linda is uh, the executive director of the New York chapter of the American College of Physicians, and without uh, her support, I don't think we would have been able to, to do this project. Um, among the things that we would like to include in continuing this kind of work is one that I've already mentioned, which is uh, looking at entire practice systems, for example, a community health center, and, and executing a similar kind of training program that involves not just physician staff, not just professional staff, but also uh, the clerical staff, the uh, medical assistants, uh, the whole environment, because the stresses in medicine, uh, it's interesting, I'll tell you, just out of my experience in facilitating the course, as the physicians were talking about their clinical encounters, they became very alive, and it was clear to me that I could be a patient of so many of the participants uh, that were uh, discussing their, their patients in the program because of the way in which they discussed it and, the, and how much concerning care they had. Many of the other things uh, about the office engineering, about the processes, really were sources of stress, including the external stresses of uh, reimbursement and insurance and relationships with institutions and so on. So that if we would uh, consider doing a project like this that would involve an entire family, if you will, in a practice uh, that would change the nature of communication among staff, uh, professional and non-professional, that would change the nature of uh, how that staff encounters the patient, and that I hope would change the uh, experience from the patient's uh, perspective so that we would be able to look at not only attrition, for example, or um, burnout among the staff members, but also look out at the quality of care provided, the continuity of care provided, uh, such as follow-up and, uh, and loss to follow-up, and the satisfaction of the patient's experience. Uh, I think that's a, a wonderful uh, addition to what we've already started here. Well, Linda, that was a great question, and uh, again, thanks to you and your fellow uh, staff at the New York chapter of the American College of Physicians. I think one additional answer to that might be this could be a great opportunity for state chapters of the ACP, uh, the AAFP, and the AAP, and the, our osteopathic colleagues, the primary primary care organizations to come, come together in states to sponsor such programs. In Oregon, we have a a, a nonprofit called the Foundation for Medical Excellence, which does a lot of physician well-being and mindful, mindfulness training. So it seems to me that in, in different states or different regions, there probably are different resources that can be brought together to offer up such a service to their membership or to the to the physicians in their areas. I think that was a great question. Thank you for for your support in this uh, in this work, and certainly thank you for the question, uh, Tamika. I'll go next to Wynn Whitcomb. Hi, this is Wynn Whitcomb. I'm a hospitalist, and I'm a quality officer in Springfield, Massachusetts. Um, and 
My question actually started to answer a little bit there at the end of your last answer, and it's this. Um, so if we're thinking about mental states in the practice of medicine, um, and not just for physicians but for any clinician, and, and, uh, and we consider that, you know, the mindful state and being in, in the moment and being open is perhaps the optimal state in which to provide safe care. Uh, the question is, how do you package that? How do you generalize that in healthcare settings that are increasingly open to interruptions, beepers, alarms, um, you know, uh, things that are simply taking you off of your, you know, mental game on a continuous basis? You know, how do you actually harness the, that state of mind? That's a great question. It's a very good question, uh, and I I don't know if I have a great a great answer or even a good answer for that matter. Um, I think that these um, environments have developed uh, for a variety of reasons, and in some ways partly through inattention and unawareness. So that to the extent that we can bring attention and awareness to these very problems, we may begin to work with them maybe begin to find alternatives. Just a few weeks ago, I attended a safety course uh, that I, I was in some ways uh, required to attend uh, for malpractice insurance reduction. And it actually turned out to be a wonderful experience because I learned uh, some of the things about uh, the way the people in, in the world of safety approach uh, teamwork and other environments, in particular uh, discussions around the surgical environment and how the surgical environment has changed in a way that really is looking at ways to uh, get a handle or control on those unexpected uh, interruptions and on making sure that everyone is looking at the same thing for the same reason, for the right reason, whether it's the right leg that you need to operate on or whether it's that everyone is ready for a variety of uh, potential eventualities um, and that roles are clearly defined and so on and so forth. And I was really amazed that uh, that the surgical staff have really been able to, now their environment perhaps is a little bit more amenable and more controllable, but has been able to uh, address the environmental things that uh, impact uh, attention and awareness and as a result of that impact, impact safety. So I think uh, the first step is uh, where do we direct our attention and awareness, and what are we ignoring, not paying attention, or even if we're paying attention to it, not willing to uh, do the difficult work of confronting it, of facing it, of coming into contact with it, and addressing it. Uh, so it's a starting point, and I don't know the uh, the end result or the answer, except the starting point would be turning toward those very things that are uh, creating this continuous partial attention that I uh, opened up with. Yeah, great question. Um, Tamika, let's see if we have time for one more question real quickly. And that question will come from Jerry Donahue. Hello, Dr. Krasner. Thank you so much for your presentation and for the wonderfully meaningful work that you're doing. The practice of mindfulness seemingly just has unending benefits to the doctor-patient relationship. And I'm just curious about, and I think you spoke to that your your research doesn't 
speak directly to this, but physicians that may be uncomfortable in this area, or may be a little reticent or resistant, um, do you have any comments about that, of how how to approach um, if you were in, in the work with educating physicians around uh, something like uh, risk reduction and patient safety and, and reducing the risk of medical malpractice liability? Sometimes it might be the physician that would be more prone to be hesitant or resistant towards mindfulness that might need it the most. Yeah, great question. And um, Mick, we have time for a real quick answer on that one. Um, yeah, I don't know the answer to that. I, uh, um, you know, I, can, I only know what I know, which is the people that are willing to come to the course, and I haven't been trying to uh, sell this uh, to those that aren't showing up. Uh, so I think it's a good question. I don't know the answer. I think uh, offering educational opportunities like this one where, where these things are discussed uh, openly, uh, having the kinds of uh, uh, public, uh, public or professional forums such as Grand Rounds presentations and professional staff that really looks at the domains of our attention and awareness and how that affects the experience of the practice of medicine. Um, I think as people begin to hear it, they may become more comfortable, not that the goal is for them to sign up for uh, a training course in mindfulness, but so that they can learn to become a little more reflective and uh, see the benefits of that. I think to the extent that we can demonstrate that there are benefits to our patients, I believe most physicians want to do what's right and want to do what's best for their patients. Uh, I w I'm convinced of that, especially through my experience with these participants. And I think if we can enter, have them enter through that doorway, through what's best for patients, I think we may be able to make some headway there. Thank you very much, Dr. Krasner, and thanks to all of you for participating. Unfortunately, as is almost always the case, we're out of time, and we wish we had a lot more for this conversation. Again, I'd like to thank you, Dr. Krasner, for providing an enlightening discussion today. As a reminder, Author in the Room is a monthly program that takes place on the third Wednesday of every month at 2 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Our next discussion is on Wednesday, December 16th, and again, the article for that discussion is Rethinking Screening for Breast Cancer and Prostate Cancer that appeared in the October 21st issue of JAMA. Sponsored by both the Journal of the American Medical Association and the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Author in the Room is an interactive conference call designed to accelerate changes that can improve clinical care. Thank you for being a part of Author in the Room today, and good day.